open your Bible, if you would, to Revelation chapter 5. There should be a Bible in the pew rack near you. If you did not bring one and you will need the Bible open as the message will simply develop the text of this chapter of God's Word. Revelation chapter 5, the scene as chapter 4 is in heaven. Only now the focus uh, by the end of the chapter begins to shift and in the chapters following the scene will be the earth and the great tribulation will be in view. But in Revelation chapter 5, as we allow God the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our understanding, to pull the veil back ever so slightly, and we get only a glimpse, it will be an unforgettable thrill to see the Lamb that was slain at the center of everything. You know, this is the first that we see of him. And now he comes to center stage and the universe is filled with his glory, drawing every eye and prompting endless praise and applause. It is the prelude to the great tribulation and the key to understanding the scene in chapter 5 is found in the book or the scroll that is held in the hand of he who sits on the throne. It is a scroll with seven seals and later in the book as the seals are broken successively out of each seal will come judgments. There will follow the pealing of trumpets and bowls of wrath. So let us consider worthy is the Lamb. Let me pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, by the power of the sevenfold Spirit of God that is sent forth into all of the earth, may we focus by your grace and to your glory on the Lamb that was slain. I pray in his name. Amen. Beginning in Revelation 5, verse 1, in verses 1 through 3, here is what I have called the search and the silence. Follow as I read. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book, written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming, with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. The scene that we need to grasp, and it is inferred and revealed by the text, but the, the scene that we need to gaze at for a moment before we uh, consider the description is of the one seated on the emerald throne whose appearance is bright in glory so that he cannot be adequately described by the human tongue of John the beloved apostle who observes the scene. 
the one sitting on the throne, the emerald throne, the God who created, the God who spoke, who rules, who reigns, holds in his book, in his hand a book. And a call goes out for one who is worthy to open the book and a search begins. The gauntlet is thrown down. It is thrown down to men and to angels, to principalities and to powers. And the question in focus is, who is fit to rule and reign in the glorious kingdom that shall follow? As the search begins, attention is on the scroll. And obviously the scroll is very important and the, the context uh, will help us understand what the scroll is and the scriptural image is very clear. The book is the title deed to the universe. The book is the deed of ownership to the universe. Now the biblical metaphor is, is very clear in the practice of ancient Israel. When in Israel, one belonging to the nation, one in, who owned property, all the property had been given to the families of the 12 tribes of Israel by Moses when the land of promise was divided. And when they wished to convey that land, they wrote a book describing the landmarks and the boundaries, the terms and the conditions. And the book was passed from hand to hand in the presence of the elders of the city whenever a transfer was made. And here at the end of time as we know it, I've titled our look at the book of Revelation, The End and the Beginning. Here at the end of time as we know it, in the beginning of the rest of eternity, God is ready in the presence of all the elders to pass the title to the one who is worthy. And the search begins. The sphere of man is in view, for they search on the earth. The sphere of judgment is in view, for they search under the earth. Or even, we might say, hell was searched to find one who was worthy. And the question decided will be, who has the right to possess the rule and the reign in the kingdom to come? And following the search, or as the search is in progress, there is an utter and complete silence in heaven. For no doubt there are many who were willing to rule and reign. I have never found in my limited experience in very small matters a lack of anybody who wanted to take over anything that could be taken over. That is never a problem. And in the history of the world, finding someone who is willing, there would be many of the Caesars come forward. The great conqueror Alexander, Adolf Hitler, Napoleon, others would come forth willing but the question was not who is willing, the question is who is worthy. 
The ranks of the living and dead, those on earth, those in heaven, and those in hell are combed for a worthy king, but not a one is found. Not one. There is no one to claim it. Now also in view, and it is so, it is so beautiful. I made a, a statement about this in recent weeks, but let me make it again very briefly. We are told repeatedly in the scripture that when God gave the pattern for the worship of the tabernacle in the wilderness to Moses, and when he gave the laws governing the nation, and when he gave the pattern for the temple and the design of the temple which Solomon built, and all of the instructions for the worship of the temple, we are told that those instructions were given according to the pattern of heavenly things. Now, in the laws of the nation of Israel, a man was forbidden to give his uh, inheritance away forever. At the end of every 50 years, the inheritance was to be redeemed and it was to come back home to those to whom it had been given. And so coming into view is what is called in the Old Testament the kinsman redeemer. It is one of the earliest and one of the most beautiful pictures of our Lord Jesus Christ in, as it touches our salvation. But here we see him as kinsman redeemer of the entire universe. Now the kinsman redeemer had to meet three standards. Number one, he had to be a near relative. He had to be in the family. He had to be in the blood family. He had to be a near relative. Number two, the kinsman redeemer had to be willing. But number three, the kinsman redeemer had to be able to pay the price. And it is the kinsman redeemer who comes into view. The book in the hand of him on the throne is hidden from all but the one with the power to open it. And there is a deep silence, a silence followed in heaven. The voices of every angel cease to sing. No voices cried out because none of all of those in all of creation through all of the ages is found worthy to come and to take the book. Here is the search and the silence. And then notice in verse 4, here is what I have called the sadness and the sobbing. And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. The silence is broken by tears. The fine Bible teacher John Phillips made a statement about this moment in Revelation 5, and I, I love the way he said it so well. I want to I'll let you hear it exactly as he said it. Suddenly the silence is broken, this is probably the first time that anyone had cried in heaven. For in that land of fadeless day there is no death, no sorrow, 
No crying, no tears, and no pain. But there stood a visitor, the aged apostle, amid scenes of grandeur which defy description, weeping with salty tears running down his weather-beaten face, weeping in shame for all the sons of Adam's race, not one of whom was worthy to take up the challenge. Think of it. Not a single man of all the billions who have lived on earth, not one fit to rule and to reign. Only a visitor, John, could have wept in heaven. He was there temporarily. And I wonder what the angels must have thought is that silence was broken. But there is something very significant in view here. We are submerged in a, a pool of world views in our world, in our age, that says to us one way is as good as another. It doesn't matter if you're right about everything. After all, there may not be any such thing as absolute right or absolute wrong. There are many paths to the same destination. And when it's all over, everybody is going to be okay. But this brief interlude in heaven where the sevenfold Spirit of God searched through all the ages and every corner of creation, found not one worthy. And I suggest that it is a very good thing that he did not. Because if any were worthy, only the worthy would be saved. And all of the rest would be lost. Because there was not one worthy, Paul said, repeating the Old Testament, there is none righteous, no, not one. Isaiah said, we have turned everyone to his own way, and he has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here is the sadness and the sobbing. And then notice in verses 5 through 8, and one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having <coughs> seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took it out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. In verses 5 through 8, here is the Savior and the Sovereign the Savior and the Sovereign. John's tears are, are dried. One of the elders, one of the 24, 
that we have seen before speaks to him and says, Look, there is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Often in our lives we fail to reckon and in history it has often been the story that God's people have failed to reckon on the fact that God never leaves himself without a man. In fact, he generally has more than we suspect that he has. But in this case, there was only one. When God created the heavens and the earth and he created man, male and female, he created them and he said to them, Be fruitful, replenish the earth, have dominion. Dwell in the garden I have provided only of the fruit of the tree at the center of the garden you may not eat, but everything else is yours, have dominion over this earth. But by rebellion, by foolishness, the inheritance was lost. And so it is that he is called in the New Testament the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in him, everything that we lost when Adam fell, he regained. As Paul says, he who knew no sin became sin itself that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Now when the elder said, the lion of the tribe of Judah, it must indeed have struck a chord in the heart of this old apostle. Do you remember that this man and his brother James were called by the Lord Jesus as a nickname, Boanerges, it means sons of thunder. They are the ones who came back to the Lord Jesus one day and said, Lord, we were down the road somewhere and someone was preaching you, but we don't know them and they're not one of us. Why don't we just call down thunder from heaven and strike them dead? And thereafter, Jesus called them the sons of thunder. Something of that old desire must have began to flow uh, in that aged apostle because for generations the Jews had looked for that kind of a messiah. One of the main reasons they did not accept Jesus Christ, as we shall see in the Gospel of John, is that he was the wrong kind of Messiah. From his very earliest days, he announced sacrifice for sin. He was meek. He showed no interest in taking over and being a king and a general. And they rejected him. They were looking for the lion of the tribe of Judah. And here he is. And no lesser an authority than one of the elders around the throne has said to John, the lion of the tribe of Judah is there. Look, there he is. And John begins to look. But he didn't see the lion. Instead, he saw the lamb. In the midst of the throne, among the elders, was a lamb as if slain. You know, he was probably there all along. He was just unnoticed until then. Amidst all of the splendor and the emerald rainbow, the thunder and the lightning and the sounds of the voices and the praises, John had failed to see him. So do we. I read again yesterday the book of Jeremiah and the aged prophet Jeremiah near the end of his life says that 
God, when he took him there, or rather this is Elijah, I also read uh, 2 Kings, and God took Elijah and put him by the rock in the mountain of God. And there was a whirlwind and there were great scenes of of excitement and, and marvelous visions, but God was not in any of them. He was in the still, small voice. And it is much that way for John. He had not noticed the Lamb. And we need to always remember that we can worship, we can listen, we can read, we can sing and pray, and we can still miss Him. He missed him because the lion was the lamb. They didn't recognize him when he came because he did not measure up to their standards. Now that seems rather upside down and backwards, doesn't it? And I'm so glad you're sitting down because if you have never had the... Well, let me say it this way. You have had the experience. You may not have recognized it because very few days of your life will pass that God fails to measure up to your standards. Or mine. Only God would set a slain lamb against a dragon, a beast, and countless armies at the end of time. But this lamb is unusual. He has seven horns. They are a symbol in prophetic scripture of the omnipotence of God. The fact that God possesses All power. Now this is free and it will only take a very brief moment to say this. There is really only one issue in what you believe. And that is, how much power does God have? If God has all power, all the other questions are answered very easily. And the lamb that was slain has seven horns. A sign of his omnipotence. He possesses all power. And he has seven eyes, which are the sevenfold spirits of God that are sent forth into all the earth. They represent the omniscience, the fact that God possesses all knowledge. And there in bright splendor beyond the sky at the inmost heart of the universe, when introduced the lamb that was slain is instantly worshipped. And I think it is significant that as the elders fall down before him, they bear with them bowls containing the prayers of the believers, the prayers of the saints. Our requests are never far from his throne. But because he possesses all power, Because he possesses all knowledge, it is a foregone conclusion, as Isaiah said in chapter 55, that his ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts. As high as the sky, the heavens are above the earth, so different are his ways from ours. You've heard it said that uh, the Lord will, he may wait till the 11th hour, but he will always come through. And some cynic will say, well, I... He didn't come through at the 11th hour and at uh, 3 in the afternoon I crashed and burned. No, not really. 
he does not have the same look, the same perspective that we have. He always acts in time. It is never too late. He knows best. There is action in their worship of Him. They fall down before the throne. And the implements of their worship are their harps, the musical instruments. In His first coming, John the Apostle who wrote these two books that we study now was standing with his first teacher, John the Baptizer, when his teacher said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And now before the throne he is there and one of the elders says, Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He was the Lamb in his first coming. He is the Lion in his second coming. As Lamb we see his meekness. As Lion we see his majesty. As Lamb he is the Savior. As Lion he is the Sovereign. When he came the first time he was judged. At his second coming he is the judge. And when he came as Lamb we see the grace of God. But when he reigns as Lion we see the universal government of God. Here is the Savior and the Sovereign. And then notice in verses 9 through 14, here is the song and the submission. I think we should read it. Beginning in verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book, and to break its seals. For thou wast slain and did, didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all things in them, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and dominion, forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down, and worshipped him. When we first looked into the throne room of God, we saw the highest of all order of all creation, the angels around the throne, spending all of their time through all eternity praising and worshiping Him. But this is that day of which Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2. Verses 8 and 9. 
And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is worshipped and He is praised forever at the focal center of the universe, but at the farthest circumference of creation and the universe, He will be praised in that day. From every possible sphere, every tongue will acknowledge Him. There will be no dissenters then. The fallen angels, the devil and his demons, the sinners of all the ages, all of those who know Him, all of those who never did, all will bow the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. They will admit it. You know, it, there, is, uh, there is no end to the ways that we could speculate about what will be the worst thing about an eternity apart from God. But surely a supreme tragedy will be to know for all eternity that Jesus is Lord and to be shut away from His presence in farthest, darkest, and loneliest isolation. Now in verse 10, I believe the church is in view. The church will rule with Him, for it is very much like the description that Peter gave us in one of his epistles when he said that God has made us to be a kingdom of priests. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Here is redemption song, the song of redeeming love. And now it is all completely accomplished. You know, it may seem odd for us, and throughout the rest of this book of Revelation, as the scene shifts from uh, the heavens to earth, how can there be such jubilation and glory and worship and praise and joy in heaven when there is so much trouble and pain and sorrow on the earth? I do not profess to be wise enough to unravel all of that, nor even to express the truth that I believe I understand about it. But allow me to say, as food for thought, that as the confessions of our faith that Baptists have followed these hundreds of years say, the reason that God has done everything that God has ever done is for His own glory. And though the rebellion of man has reached its apex, on the earth, they will begin to unite to try to eradicate 
and destroy him, though that is going on on the earth. He who has all power has said, Enough! The appointed hour is come. There is no more time. Bring the book. Bring the Lamb. The time is now. Let the celebration begin. Christ is now vindicated. The believers are now redeemed and avenged. And the prayers of believers for all of the ages as He taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those prayers are now answered. Here is truly the song and the submission. In verses 11 and 12, here are described seven possessions of Christ. And the climax of it all is blessing, undiluted, pure blessing poured out on all who will come to Christ. To Him belongs power. Let me give you some scripture references, those of you who are taking notes, and you'll want to look them up and just see how the scripture confirms itself. To Him belongs power. You might look at Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. Matthew 28, 18. To Him belongs riches. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Ephesians 3, 8. To Him belongs wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1, 24. Romans 2, 16. To Him belongs strength. Christ will be acknowledged by all the heavenly hosts as the ultimate source of all strength. To Him belongs honor. Revelation 4, 13. Philippians 2, 10. To Him belongs glory. John 1.14 in the beautiful prologue. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. To Him belongs blessing. The climax of it all is in the blessing poured out on all who will and have received Him. They are not kept by Christ. They are freely given and shared with all men. Worthy is the Lamb. We have seen the throne and the throne room and the creatures around the throne. We have seen the moment that every one of us shall participate in either at a distance or at His feet. And now the shift will be, the scene will shift to the earth for the terrible time of the great tribulation. Men often reject Him but he will be universally acknowledged and accepted. There may be dark times now, but it will be glorious then. And somehow I think that across the scene in heaven, as they celebrate, there is the echo of his word from the cross. It is finished. Redemption is now accomplished. Man has been set free. Creation has been liberated. Paul says in Romans, the creation itself groans until now, awaiting liberation. Worthy is the Lamb. We have a special privilege. We have the privilege 
right now. Not later. Not when the universe bows. We have the privilege right now and with every day of our lives to bow at His feet and to proclaim His worthiness. We have the privilege of worship. We have the privilege of praise. We have the privilege of proclamation, of sharing with others. The Lamb is worthy who was slain. I do not know the thing that draws your attention these days, what it is that is so close to the surface and so dominant that whenever your mind is not occupied, it turns there. But I do know that there is, by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the grace of our sovereign Lord, there is available that which will make it okay, which will bring comfort and healing and peace and power. And you can begin to appropriate it. As you get a head start on those who refuse to acknowledge him, and day by day, with your eyes on him, worship the lamb that was slain. May we pray. Heavenly Father, truly the, the scene is beyond our comprehension. Indeed, it is exciting, it is magnificent, but it is so awesome and so overwhelming. And yet, day by day, we allow things that are a part of our existence to crowd that scene away and to put it aside. Father, forgive us for our focus. Indeed, it is tragic when so many reject and refuse our Lord. But how tragic it is when we who know Him live as though we have rejected and refused Him. Father, would you give us, by this, this glimpse of His glory, would you give us new freedom and new grace to focus on the eternal to the extent that we order our lives and our priorities according to things that really matter. Show us the difference between wood, hay, and stubble, which shall be burned up in the fires of judgment, and the precious things that shall endure, that we can put aside as we serve you faithfully. You have created us for yourself. You have created us for your glory. And I pray for these, your people, this night. That every one of us 
will begin to know and experience the purpose for which you have made us. Do with us as you please. Give us the grace to trust you even when we do not understand. Use our lives as well as the words of our lips to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ so that others may know and come to the Lamb. I pray in His name. Amen. During our time of commitment, we're going to sing Just As I Am. It's hymn 187 if you need the book. I don't know your heart. I don't know your need. Uh, I've undergone a strange uh, shift of mood as I've gone through this chapter for it is, it is so exciting, but then it is so overwhelming. When I, at the same time I look there, see reflected the world around me and my life and how little it is lived in the light of that day. The last word of the Lord to the church is repent. He said it repeatedly, repent or else. I do not know your heart, I do not know your need, but I invite you to the Lamb that was slain. His blood washes whiter than snow. I invite you to commit your life completely in every way to Him, however He would lead you, publicly or privately, right now and quickly, as we stand and while we sing, Just As I Am. <laughs>